Welcome back. My name is Isabel Gates, and this is the Spacemakers Podcast. If you are joining our space for the first time, I'm going to ask you to watch a couple episodes before you resume this one, just because we have so much background, disclaimers, and explanations to cover in terms of who we are and what we're doing. So if you could just start off with episode zero to get an idea of what this podcast is about and then watch the introduction to deconstruction episode, you should be nice and ready for this episode. If you want to go the extra mile, we also recommend listening to episode three first, which talks about listening to different experiences with empathy. So with that out of the way, let's dive into today's episode. We are now well into our deconstruction series. We've already established what we mean by the term deconstruction, that questioning and thinking out of the box is good and healthy, and we already began deconstructing certain beliefs with our previous episode with Nick Zola, our most popular episode so far. We wanted to take a second and thank our listeners for 3,000 streams that first week we released that one. For this episode, we are going to continue kind of deconstructing some things with you, and this one's a big one. If you ask the average person in the world what is one specific action someone needs to do to be a good Christian every week, what will it be? Probably go to church. It's just what you do. All the good Christians do it. The first step to getting close to God is putting on your Sunday best, driving to a building with your family, and sitting in a crowd of people listening to a preacher talk. But what if that wasn't what the Bible was talking about when it said church? This is something we do every week, multiple times a week maybe, and some of us from the time we're born until we die, but have we actually sat back and asked if this is the way we're supposed to do this? I'm not saying that it's not, but have we even asked that question? Since I was born, Sundays have been my busiest days. When I was little, my dad was a preacher, so it was work day for the family. It was the day we were all on and picture perfect. We were the first in the building and the last to leave. And then when I got older, Sundays got even more intense. 7 a.m. worship practice, 9 a.m. service, fellowship until 11, lunch with my college ministry, a small group leaders meeting at 1, a Bible study at 3, the list goes on. And I never stopped to wonder, was this what church was meant to be? And again, I'm not saying that it's not, but I never even stopped to wonder, was this what it looked like for the first century church in the Bible? What parts are necessary and what parts aren't? What parts are we missing? If we're going to put all this time, money, and energy into putting on a service that we consider the most important thing you do in your week, so much so that we consider attendance at this event an indicator for spirituality and failure to attend one of the seven deadly sins, shouldn't we be able to examine it and wonder why we're doing it? But I guess after the pandemic, a lot of us have kind of wondered about the structure of Sundays, huh? If Christians all over the world halted the ritual of gathering in a building on Sunday mornings for a whole year, what does that mean for a Sunday service's sovereignty or our needs when it comes to a church community? If the pandemic or anything else has left you in a state of wandering or questioning, you're not alone. There are a lot of us who have wondered about scriptures like don't give up meeting together and the examples of church communities in the Bible and how that has over history turned into a more theater style setting. 
were wondering what was biblical, what was just added, what types of events or settings actually do foster unity and community, and what are just things that we're used to. As we go on in this deconstruction series, we really wanted to hear from experts like Douglas Jacobi and Marty Solomon, but for the next couple episodes, we're hearing from people who have ministry experience in their own right, but who are just dreaming and brainstorming and making steps towards trying to figure out if we can do this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing better. My husband and I were invited to a Zoom brainstorm session that Jack Meisinger was putting together. He basically wanted to ask young people for their ideas and input in terms of church. But we were so encouraged hearing his ideas, hearing his vision for what church could look like. It felt like finding a missing piece of the puzzle. We felt that for many people who maybe didn't feel like this current structure of church worked for them, they might be excited to hear that there might be other options. Jack is 32 and has spent seven years in the ministry in Boston and Australia and just moved to England with his family. He is now in the Birmingham church and is working cooperatively with the leadership in Birmingham to experiment with new ways of creating community and reaching the next generation. Maybe his ideas will be new to you, maybe they won't, but we love hearing people with solutions and dreams and ideas who aren't afraid to not only think outside of the box, but if needed, to live outside of it and to make the scary and difficult steps towards exploring different ways to love God together. So with no further ado, let's hear from Jack Meisinger. As usual, this is going to be my interview with him and part two will have the Space Makers discussion and response. This is our deconstruction series, as you know. And so I guess I'm just wondering for you specifically, have you gone through the process of deconstruction? Are you still going through it? And can you share what that looked like for you? Sure. Yep. And uh, I I understand that Doug Jacoby did a podcast about what is construction and, and took some of the fear and the scariness out of the phrase. Uh, and to me, it is being like a Berean and questioning um, what you're told and, and being willing to test the foundations of what you believe. So I think if, if you're learning, if you're growing, you're always doing that to some extent, or you're doing that on a fairly kind of shallow level. If you're not willing to analyze the, the fundamentals of what you believe and why, then, then you're just kind of adjusting um, in sort of, you know, in some sort of way, but not a deep, you know, uh, significant way. So Anyway, I, I, th- I hope we all are in some process of deconstruction, but then there's kind of the common understanding of deconstruction and um, not to be kind of too uh, pedantic about it, but I sort of failed to construct is how I would put it was. So I was baptized and before that I've been reading the Bible and praying and I've been getting this idea of what church would look like just kind of me myself in my room and I was imagining this community drawn together by their common love for God and their faith 
And then in Acts, you see them selling everything. They look fairly poor. It seemed to me they would be helping people and experiencing kind of God working. And it just looked sweet. So I was like, where is this group? Where are they at? And so I looked online, couldn't really find anything. I went to a church. They invited me to a small group. I went. It really wasn't what I was looking for. I met some disciples. I said, I'm looking for a first century church. And they said, that's what we are. So I said, great. So I studied the Bible, got baptized like 10 days later. And, um, and that was, that was great. I mean, I appreciated the campus minister there and his faith. His name was Trey wall and uh, he's a close friend of mine. And, um, and, but there, there was a, a point in time where I stopped coming to church and I just didn't show up for a couple of weeks. And his wife was like, Trey, you should call Jack. So Jack, Trey called me. I was like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm having church from home. And he's like, no, you need to come to church. And so I said, okay. And, uh, and then I was going to church and then I stopped. And then I was told the, the leader of the church, I was going to stop just because some of the disciples, it didn't seem like that passion, that zeal that I read about in the Bible was actually in the campus ministry. You know, there was like, we would go out and share our faith and that type of thing. But in general, we hang, you know, it just didn't seem like there was this, whatever it was that I was looking for. Um, and so I told him, you know, I'm going to try and find that somewhere else. And he said, there's only one way to get to heaven. And he kind of pounded on the table as he said it. And so more out of fear than out of, you know, uh, out of like some sort of, I'm convinced or that's a great point. <laughs> it was like kind of an intimidating conversation. So I, I said, okay. So I, I just did that. And then and then that feeling, that thing that I was looking for and seeking, I was like, well, maybe it's just wrong. You know, maybe that doesn't exist. Maybe it's too idealistic and I just need to do what these people are telling me to do. So that's the mindset that I took on for seven years. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to learn. Maybe I'm just too proud. Let me be humble, take all of this on. And eventually it should start clicking. But after seven years, it didn't. And I realized I was more dispassionate in my soul than ever before. I was trained better. I could preach or I could run a ministry, but I just wasn't, I didn't want to pass on my, the faith that I had to my son. I didn't want that for him because me and Sarah were married. I was, we were thinking about having a kid and I just didn't think if I was looking at me and I knew me, you know, I could maybe put on a show for, for other people and inspire them. But if I knew me, I wouldn't be inspired by what was going on inside of me, you know, maybe by some of the things that I knew, but not who I was at my core. And I didn't, and I knew that my son would see through that and would know me. And I didn't want him to just see his dad grinding it out, doing what other people expected of him, but not living out a passionate faith. So at that point I said, okay, well, how could I to live my life in a way that is true to this calling that I feel like is from God. And at the same time in fellowship with the church. And then this idea of house church came to mind. I rented a book from the library in, in Sydney and in, at Macquarie university. I read it in like three days. It was brilliant. And then I told the minister, like, I'm really excited about this. I want to do this. And he's like, where did this come from? You have not told me about this at all. And you must not have been, you know, keeping me in the loop about what you're, what you're thinking. I was like, no, honestly, this, this all came about three days ago, but I'm all in. And this is what, this is what I want to do. So, um, so we, you know, left Sydney a few uh, shortly after that. And then we've been pursuing that since then, you know, uh, how can we, how could we create a church that seems to capture some of those 
some of the spirit of the New Testament. And I don't think it's about a model, but it's just about maybe God leading and and trying to tap into where he's leading me and, and see where that takes me and our family and, and what God does with that. So it was, I had to deconstruct a little bit, but I sort of, why I say I failed to construct this because it just never seemed like I, I, I wasn't ever super convinced doing, doing ministry seemed like kind of like, uh, it, it, you could make it make sense with Bible verses, but it never clicked for me. And, uh, so, so that's why it never become, became something I was very attached to. Um, and I always knew I was a little bit different. Uh, so one time I went to a, um, a internship and at the internship, they said, okay, you know, if you're here, then you're a type A person because only type A people are here. Uh, and so then I knew I was like a sleeper cell, you know, in the, in this internship, because nobody in my whole life would ever describe me as a type A. I got most creative in high school. That was my superlative. So like I, you know, my favorite class was art. <laughs> I wasn't like the most likely to exceed, succeed or whatever. So, um, so I just felt like, okay, this is probably, I probably need to be somebody else, somebody that I'm not like something I've never been before. Never has been appealing to me. It's probably something I need to try to be somebody productive, uh, goal orientated. Um, and, but I did have a couple of questions on that internship. And I asked, uh, one of the, one of the leaders there, I said, so why does I had two questions? Cause we were encouraged to kind of question and learn and, you know, soak up knowledge from the leaders and be trained. And so I said, my, I was trying to think of qu questions that I could ask. And the ones that were really on my mind was why does Paul never teach the church to evangelize like we do? So I asked him, why does Paul never in the new Testament teach people they need to go out and evangelize? You know, I mean, he says, follow my example, but that could mean his example of his whole life commitment to Christ a little less specific, you know, uh, he, says to be all things to all people to win some, but that's an example. I think he's saying that about himself. So there's just no, nothing clear to me where it sounded like something that we would say in a message. Paul, it didn't seem like Paul ever said that. And besides, yeah. So, so anyway, I, I asked that question and I asked, how do you have a good quiet time or what's the next? Cause to me, it was like, how do I mature spiritually? It's not necessarily like, how do I evangelize more as much as I want to have an impact on the world? I think I was looking for help in the, the, the next step in my spiritual progress. Um, and the answer to the first question was it's assumed like Paul assumes people are going to evangelize, which is okay. Uh, and then um, the second answer was, you know, read your Bible and pray. And, and so it just, you know, it, it wasn't that satisfying to me. Um, and that was at the very beginning of my journey as a, as a, as a young minister. And then towards the end of that, I remember advice from um, an, another ministry leader, or actually it was the same coincidentally, but um, I was just talking to him. We were walking and talking and he said, you need to be more of a meathead. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the context or what he was thinking about. He might've meant that in the best way, you know, don't analyze too much. You're analyzing until you're paralyzed, that type of thing. Um, but when he said, be more of a meathead to me, it's like, I'm not a meathead. I've never been a meathead. You know, the way that I became a Christian was I was reading a bunch of philosophy books and then questioning everything and being super existential. Like being a meathead is just not something I'm inclined towards. So, so it just seemed like 
I never, I never was fitting in. And, um, I read Gordon Ferguson's book shortly after, uh, I came out of the ministry and he has a phrase square peg in a round hole, but a lot of people in church can feel like a square peg in the round hole. And that's the exact phrase that I used to explain to my friend, Will Thorne, who's, who's I love and respect. Uh, but I was explaining to him why I felt like i didn't fit in. I just felt like a square peg in a round hole. And Gordon said, that's when people try to imitate people that they're not, then they feel like that. And, and so, and he used the same phrase that I used to describe how I felt. Um, and he says in the same book, uh, the Romans, a heart set free, he says, uh, you know, it's, it's systems are easy to build, but not easy to dismantle. And then he asked the question, do we have a system? And that's from memory. So that's, but I think that's the quote in the book. Um, so that was Gordon deconstructing a little bit. And, um, and what that was where I was at. So that's, that's a, a bit of my journey of, of deconstruction and how that started. And, and where I'm at to some, to some extent. Yeah. I love hearing your story and your perspective because I think sometimes, especially for people who are young or grew up in the church, our path to being Christians can sometimes involve like little to no questioning, little to no, I don't know. I just feel like it, it's kind of, the path is just kind of like just it happens to you or you become a disciple or you get baptized or however. Um, and then I think for some of us, it just comes later on to where we're like, wait. <laughs> and I think um, for, you know, for us and for a lot of people deconstructing, like that is a huge motivator for asking these questions as if, you know, things don't add up or we don't feel like we fit in um, or we don't feel like, yeah, we feel kind of like uncomfortable or all those things. So I just love hearing that your story is kind of, I mean, it's pretty universal. It's like, if you start questioning and like questioning and kind of not fitting in or being uncomfortable, kind of just both fit in the same, <laughs> you know, they go hand in hand. Cause, um, and then, but what I love about, um, kind of how you're approaching it is that you also want to like, not just question to again, like deconstruct, but you also want to reconstruct and try to figure out, um, kind of the solutions and all the, the dreams that we can have with that. So I think it's so funny that we're like even doing an episode on this. Cause I feel like the thought of even rethinking what church looks like is terrifying to a lot of people and definitely shocking and probably will get us in trouble. But I think it's good to think about, like, it's this thing that like, at one point, I actually calculated this recently at one point in my life, I think two or three years ago, I was spending over 30 hours a week doing church stuff. And that almost a full-time job. And I was like, and I think it would be such a disservice to look back in like when I'm 80 and be like, Hmm, was that, was church how it should have been? Was, was all those, were all those things actually beneficial? How much of it was man-made? How much of it was actually God? How much of it was necessary? How much wasn't? How much did we miss? And I'm like, I don't want to be 80 and look back and be like, oh, I spent 30 hours a week, my whole entire life on this thing. And maybe it's not exactly what God intended. Maybe it was, I don't know, but I want to think about that now while I'm young. Um, 
or just while, while I can now, even if it is uncomfortable or hard. And so I guess, um, for you, what has that journey been like kind of thinking of what is church and what isn't it? And what thoughts have you come up with? (laughs) Right. Well, I like your point, like, um, that it's good, you know, that you want to think about this question now as opposed to later on in life, because you're going to be putting a lot of time and effort. And so it's like, if I'm going to be doing so much, I want to make sure that it's going towards the right things. And there was um, a study done by Willow Creek, uh, which is this large evangelical mega church, you know, in the States. And um, it's called the Reveal Study. And, uh, and they analyzed the effectiveness of the the program programming that they had for people and you know they run small groups and they have services and they had teaching and they and that type of thing but what they found was that there wasn't much maturity accomplished through those avenues that the uh you know like the services that they're running people weren't necessarily growing you'd think like we get people in church and they grow you come to church and you grow but the, this study basically questioned that that premise um, and, 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 and basically said that that's not true. Uh, uh, so, so it, there's reasons to question, is this the most productive thing we could be doing, or is this the most productive way we could be doing it? Um, and my, uh, in my opinion, what is church and what isn't it? Um, I, I think it begins with the presence of God, Um, So in the Old Testament, you'd have the temple and you'd have the Holy of Holies, and that's where God was. And so people would travel from all around to come and come and be close to him. Um, So I think we get some idea of what church is from there. Um, Although now, because of Jesus, he announced the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so we no longer had to worship on this mountain or that mountain, Um, you know, the kingdom of heaven is um within god is with us and uh and that changes everything and that's a huge message um because we get to live this new kind of life we get to experience life differently and god instead of going somewhere and experiencing something that experience is is inside of us all the time one of inner transformation um that brings about the fruit of the spirit uh faith, hope, and love. And so the quality, not just the quantity, eternal life can be considered a quality of life just as much as a quantity of life. We get to live this different kind of life uh, with other people. Um, So to me, that's like the thing that is huge and inspiring and gives me, um, you know, a, a, a lot of passion for what church is and what it can be. Um, that just this, awareness what i would hope for is this awareness of all the people in this church that god is here and how much that changes literally everything about our lives you know god is here and god is good and god is uh you know for us and moving and and doing things in the world and so it's a group of people who are all gathered for that reason in the scriptures we see it's a body it's a family it's a building that's being built up we are these living stones that are being built up into this building um, and all that uh, uh, to you know, uh, the, all those analogies are, are, are beautiful and helpful. Um, I think it is a, a movement of God, you know, so it's something that God does. And, and Jesus says that a person who's born 
of the spirit is like the wind. So I don't think the church can be tied down. You know, it's not a program or an organization or an institution and not definitely not a building. Um, but it's, it's, uh, something much more organic. And I think many, uh, people join many young people that I know join the ICOC thinking of it. It, it, it kind of, you know, when I asked, is this a first century church? Um, I think, and the answer was yes. I think it gave the impression that it was this young, uh, agile, spiritually vital movement. Um, and, and then I think the disillusionment came in that maybe it's a little bit more, as Gordon Ferguson said, that systems are easily built, but not easily dismantled. Maybe it's a little bit more of a, that organizational structure than, than we are, you know, than we originally thought these, these people that I know, my friends, we, 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 we uh, join and we had this expectation that it's this sort of Bible-based church. So we're free to question anything on the grounds of the Bible. And then, you know, we just line our ourselves up with that. But then you start to do that and you realize like that there's actually some expectations in place that aren't necessarily ready to be questioned. Um, so I think that's what is, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's great. I think we should be challenging things on the basis of the Bible and asking ourselves those types of questions. Um, I think it's not power-based, not King-orientated. It is a, a fellowship. You know, I think Jesus taught a dynamic of servanthood and not even servant leadership. It doesn't say, you know, if you want to, he says, if you want to be the greatest, then be the servant of all. And he doesn't say, and then you'll be the leader. <laughs> he just says, serve. So I think I saw that in a Hope Worldwide uh, video when they interviewed someone. I wish I could give him credit, but um, it was brilliantly put um, in his rewards in heaven. But uh, it, it, he doesn't say be a servant leader. It just says, be a servant. And in the Old Testament, you see that the... Israelites were actually really prone towards power-based systems because those systems, those that would put a king in place, allowed them to compete with the kingdoms of the world for wealth and for power and for glory. You know, they wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations. God warns them that if they put a king in place, then he's going to use them for, you know, to make that kingdom great to, for his glory and those types of things. And so um, we see the corrupting influence of power, and that's why God didn't think that was best for the Israelites, um, yet they preferred it. And I think there's a proclivity in, in, in people and in humans. We'd rather somebody else take responsibility for the leadership of us as individuals than ourselves to some degree. We'd rather have some. It's, I think it can be more comforting for somebody else to tell us what to do than to ask, you know, what does God want me to do and to follow that. Um, I think you see something sort of similar with Moses on the mountain where he goes up to get the 10 commandments and the Israelites could have engaged more in that process, it seems, but instead they're happy for Moses to go up to get the 10 commandments. And in the meantime, they didn't really want to have anything to do with that presence. And then instead they, you know, went down the mountain and made a golden calf, um, and it didn't seem like they really wanted to uh, be a part of of interfacing with God and rather have Moses play that role for them. 
And so Jesus says, don't call anybody rabbi. Don't call anybody teacher. Don't call anybody master. And then he points us to God. I think for that same reason, he's like, you can't in context of the Pharisees, you know, you guys are looking to these Pharisees for spiritual leadership, but you need to first and foremostly, you need to have your own relationship with God and you need to take responsibility for that. Uh, primarily yourself, because nobody else can do that for you. At the end of the day, you're going to stand before God and um, you're going to answer for this, the way that you've lived your life. And sometimes if we have a power centric, leader centric model, then it infantizes the members where they don't question, they don't consider, they don't critically think, and instead they do what they're told. And then there's, you know, some, you know, some value assigned to that saying, well, you should be submissive. And I think submission is a great uh, characteristic and it's something a spiritual discipline even. Um, but it shouldn't be the defining thing where we just give up all of our own uh, autonomy um, and freedom in order to submit. Uh, I think those things um, we have to first acknowledge our freedom in Christ and our responsibility to live, uh, to in line with our conscience and, and for God. And then that submission is, uh, comes into play as well. So, um, am I going too long? Okay. Okay. So just edit this out. Cause I got more. So I'll just keep going. All right. So, so one other thing about the, um, king oriented power-based church structure, which can be start as unintentional, but then just, you know, happen. If you have one person who's really gifted and you put him at the center and, you know, maybe you have this evangelist and he's kind of the guy and he's standing up front and that becomes the person that everybody looks to, um, that can also start to reflect the king-based model of leadership. You know, that's the danger of that. Um, and, and sometimes there can be this consolidation of power. And so we're talking about what the church should not be. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the Mars Hill, the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, but it outlines some of the dangers there where all the best intentions, you know, if you listen to Mark Driscoll at the beginning of his career, he's got such a good heart to some degree. He wants to see people become Christians. He wants to share the authority. He, he wants a strong eldership to keep him accountable and uh, these types of things. But along the way, it, he starts to sense that they need to keep this thing moving and it becomes principle-based rather than people-focused. People become victims of the mission, as one of the guys says. And he consolidates the power, uh, even legally. He, he puts a legal document forward, people oppose it, and then he kicks them out of the church, right? Or he, he, he actually um, removes their eldership and takes them off staff. And so we, we see the danger uh, when we have a a power-based system and the elderships, which should be facilitating. Uh, but I think, you know, what, what the church should be, the elders should be leading the church. Timothy was supposed to appoint elders in um, Ephesus. And then presumably after he did that, he could probably then be free to go follow Paul. Uh, but to me, it seems that elders would be, the leaders of the church and then the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers would be supplementary 
to that leadership and they would come in and strengthen as needed and also the apostles and the prophets. Um, but one thing with this power-based system is then the elders can actually start serving the evangelists instead of the other way around. And they start to look out for, for their the evangelist interests because they're kind of the guy that's getting things done. And this is the person that we're listening to. And so instead of the evangelist serving the elders, the elders are serving the evangelists. And because of that, it takes away some of the feedback mechanisms um, because the elders are looking to the evangelist interests instead of to the interests of the congregation necessarily. So then it's hard to raise significant criticisms or have serious conversations about fundamental things. Because if you go to the elders, you know, in, in my experience, it's hard to do because they are going to defer to the evangelist who, if he has the power in that system, then he's going to, you know, they know this isn't going to make this guy happy. So then it's a corporate immune system response to just get rid of that complaint. And then people who have a problem with this church structure system become the problem and are, are marginalized. So then they become, as the Mars Hill podcast puts it, victims of the mission. Um, but what could it be? I think that's a great question. You know, what should you, you said, what is it? Uh, what is church and what isn't it? And I like to say or think about what when I think about what is church is this it's, it's potential. You know, it's as there's as much potential as the people within within that church. So as an individual, as the people are within it, that's how different it could be from the next church, because it's God that arranges the parts of the body. You know, he puts these parts of the body together. So sometimes we come to God with this template and we say this, we need a church and this is the parts that are necessary. We need somebody to sing. We need somebody to preach. We need somebody to set up chairs. And so God help us have these people. And instead of like, well, who do we have? How is, who is God put here? And what does that enable us to do? What are these spiritual gifts? Because, you know, setting up chairs isn't a spiritual gift, but what are the spiritual gifts that we have within this group? And, uh, and how can we arrange it? How is God arranging those and how can we utilize those to the greatest impact and effect? And, um, and a little bit more about what church is or could be, I think the Jesus style evangelism where he focused on a few when he sends 72 people out or he sends out the 12 and he tells them to go and find an open person and stay with them, you know, we would kind of say, well, that seems like you're, you're clocking out early. Shouldn't you be knocking on a few more doors? Um, but Jesus says, go and find somebody who's a, a worthy person and stay with them. It seems like this person is hospitable so that that kind of ticks the box for character and godliness. You know, they're a hospitable person. They have a guest room that you can stay in. So they obviously have some means and some uh, probably some standing in that um, in that community. And so it would be a prime person who could become a, a seed in that community out of which that church could grow. So Jesus's priority seems to be on that individual and connecting with them, developing a relationship with them and then leaving. And then they are, you know, equipped to be the center of a Christian community that grows up around them. 
and that's why I would, uh, you know, I think another thing that points to an eldership based model. So these elder like people in the uh, community are the um, the seeds of these these churches. And then uh, it's, it's also backed up by one of our classics, the master plan of evangelism, which also points to a focus on smaller groups rather than larger groups. Um, and, you know, elder led, I think would be, would be healthy. And then if you have evangelists and pastors and teachers supporting, I think that um, is, is great, but uh, we can have more diversity there with not just evangelists, but also pastors and teachers. Uh, so you get all these these gifts functioning and even people who play the role you know, of a prophet or of an apostle, perhaps. Uh, if we identified those more as types of people rather than charismatic gifts, there would, could be room for that as well. Um, I've heard of people considering the idea of having prophet-like people go into situations where reconciliation is needed and that type of thing from, I believe, the Catalyst Group were thinking about that idea. But anyway, so you could have some of those uh, other gifts as support for these community, uh, community-led congregational types of churches that are, you know, led by elders and evangelists and pastors and teachers, helping them be accountable uh, and supporting them and, 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 and building up the church. So I think that's what it, it could be. Wow. That's amazing. You have a whole, you have like a whole plan. (laughs) That's so cool. I think it's so funny because, you know, space makers were, our whole idea was like, we want to kind of ask questions and nudge people to have conversations and to have ask questions and have space to do that. Um, And we don't really want to be in that, in the position of like, here's the answer to all of the problems. That's like not the point of the podcast. But then at the same time, people are like, stop presenting all these questions. Like, give us some suggestions. So I'm like, here are the suggestions. Here it is. Jack just gave it to you. <laughs> um, you know, we're not saying you have to follow his uh, exact thought process, but that's the whole point is like, we're brainstorming, we're dreaming. We're like trying to, yeah, like, you know, what's so bad about thinking about these things. And I know that it, it's scary to think of this established system that we have and to think of it changing, to think of, um, our positions within it changing. I know a lot of people, their whole identities, their whole, their families, their livelihoods, their everything is so intertwined in what you're talking about here. So I can sense that the whole idea of even changing it a little bit can be really scary to people. But like, but I feel like this is so healthy to just allow ourselves to think about these things. And I think this is where we have to do the hard work at like looking at the things that might make us uncomfortable and try to imagine um, better ways of doing it. If it doesn't work for everybody, trying to figure out all that, if it does work for people, like trying to figure out how to work with them. Um, And I love what you said, even about um, the whole not making it king or power oriented. Um, if you're a huge Bema listener, then you'll see it as empire versus Shalom and how we're not supposed to make church an empire. And I think sometimes we can kind of, I, I feel like I'm always trying to think of the listeners who for this, this could be like new to them. 
And I think it can be surprising to compare our church as a to an empire. Cause I think sometimes we don't think about it that way, but then it's like, you know, it's, it's not, we're not saying that it's a bad church or anything by saying that, Hey, we need to be careful of it becoming an empire. We have to be careful about power structures. We have to be careful and think about these things. And I think, you know, just because like for evangelists, I love what you were talking about in terms of like, we can't base all the power off of one person or a a handful of people, because that's really dangerous. And like, you know, it doesn't mean that I think the thing is like, I was trying to figure out, I I thought of something while you're talking in terms of like, us saying that an evangelist shouldn't be like the, the, I don't know, the center of power doesn't mean that they don't work hard. It doesn't mean that they're not good. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're serving the church with all they have. Like we are so grateful for them and for what they do, but that doesn't mean that they have to be, I don't know, be the person who, um, I don't know, answers every question or have, has the most power or has the final say about a lot of things. And I think, you know, acknowledging your power, doesn't mean that you are this evil, horrible person. I think it means that, you know, if you are a church leader, that means you have power and like, that's okay to acknowledge. Doesn't mean that you're not breaking your back, trying to serve other people, but it still means that you have power and you, maybe you need to, you know, think about that more. Um, and so, I don't know, those are just my thoughts after hearing all that. Can I just, um, just respond briefly. I was just going to say uh, that um, I've, to the people who would be concerned, like these, this is threatening everything that I've known, perhaps my livelihood, like the, you know, my social group, all this type of thing. Um, I'm not saying that everybody should do this. These are my thoughts. And this is what I'm inspired by. And, and, you know, but I don't want to impose that on someone else and say, this is right for you. And this is what you should be doing. Um, You know, I'm just trying to, trying to figure this stuff out. So it's, it, hopefully if this is helpful to someone, then that's great. But if somebody doesn't like this, then I'm not, wouldn't say that they're wrong. Um, I think we should be careful of power probably, you know, it'd be probably be naive to not have learned a lesson or two from like, you know, things in the fairly recent history of the ICOC. And, um, but uh, also that there's an evangelist, if you do put evangelists in the primary position, the primary public position, then there can be this evangelist bias. So they're, if they're the leader and they're the person that everybody's looking, looking to, then the things that are evangelist-like become the things that are esteemed, valued, uh, praised and lifted up. And it's not that they're not worthy of those things, but they're just not the full picture. You know, they're not every part of the body, but if they're the ones that are, you know, the most visible with the the largest platform and kind of the, by virtue of that seen as the most important, then people who are not like that actually can start to feel insufficient and inadequate and like they're bad people because they're not like that. And you think about all the times you've heard uh, communions where people say, I just, grace is so hard for me to understand. And I understand that there's a theological aspect to that. Perhaps there's a personal 
uh, background and, and, you know, the, the, some psychological uh, perhaps uh, reasons that that would be hard to connect with. Maybe they had really high expectation uh, parents. But also, I think, is the culture that we're creating putting a lot of pressure on people and perhaps pressure to be something that they're not valuing things that, people, you know, one set of values, but not another value. And then we end up judging a fish, you know, by its ability to climb a tree type of situation. So I think, um, you know, evangelists need to be careful with that. And I think we can help as a church to lift up uh, the other parts, the less recognized. And so that people don't feel uh, devalued and un, un, unimportant just because they play different parts and roles. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. Um, I think it's so interesting. I'm trying to figure out how to even explain to people that our church is a system. I'm like, yes, it's a family, but also I feel like it could go either way almost, or it's both, or maybe it should be one and not the other. And it's just kind of interesting. Um, cause I mean, what I think the, I saw the other day, like the ICOC has like 128,000 members or something like that. So I'm like, you can't have 128,000 member family. Like, yes, you could like, you know, like, so there's some sort of system because why do we all sing the same songs? Why do I say the word encouragement date? And everyone knows what I mean. If I, you know, like, why do I say like certain, certain words, like D group and everyone knows, or I, you know, bust out a giant J Brian Craig song and everything. And so I'm like, there is some sort of system that is going on. And I feel like it's hard for me to explain that to some people. Cause they're like, no, it's a family. And I'm like, yes. And no, and like trying to explain that, you know, uh, I'm just imagining you busting out a J Brian Craig so song. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. <laughs> I've done it many times, but, um, I think also like, so keeping that in mind, I guess, what are your opinions in terms of which, okay, again, I love what you said in terms of like, these are just my ideas. Like it'll work for some people. It won't work for some people, but I love that we're even just talking about it. Cause I feel like I just am never in a room where this kind of stuff is discussed. Maybe it's just that I'm not in that room, but I just haven't heard, you know, even the possibility of switching things up like that or rethinking things. Um, so I just love that. So I guess going along with your, um, ideas, what, what's a way that we can kind of make church more of a family and not kind of gear it towards being like attendance or membership to a system? What are your on even the difference between the two? Yeah, great question. I think um, what we could do to make it feel more like a family, um, if you think about when do you feel like a family, it's when you're connecting on a very relational level. Uh, so the times where you're doing that, it's probably when you're in a smaller group. Um, and if uh, for me, and this might be different, different for other people, if you think about when you feel closest to God, I think oftentimes it's when you're having a quiet time and when you're having intimacy with God, right? And similarly, you feel most 
fam familial. You feel uh, your warmest feelings towards other people when you are in a close relationship with them. So if that's our priority, then it would make sense to prioritize uh, relationships. And, you know, because if you want to have a great relationship with God, the way that that gets passed off to other people, I believe, is through relationships. So if a relationship with God is the most essential thing, then we should prioritize relationships. And that should be the center of our fellowship. So right now we have a fairly academic looking structure where people come and there's the worship part, which is singing the songs. But then there's a teaching part, which forms the centerpiece of our time together, generally speaking. And if you look back at church history, up until Martin Luther, the centerpiece of that was communion, um, the you know taking of the Eucharist. And the whole idea of this church as a service came from pagan uh, cults at, at the time of, um, in, in the third century, all right? And, uh, and so the idea of there's a special group of people who are going to provide this uh, magical meal to the congregants and kind of officiate this thing, that's, uh, it could, you know, influenced probably by those other groups that were around at the time. And so when Martin Luther reformed it, he didn't really change the structure, but he did change what was the center of that meeting. And if is is a sermon biblically is at the center of the meeting together we do know that it's important to be devoted to god's word we know that jesus was committed to the scriptures so i'm not saying it's not important to have teaching and and there's a role of teachers that's obviously important and we obviously need that but the world isn't actually you know like searching for more teaching or information because we have information at our fingertips. I've got NT Wright on YouTube at my fingertips. I've got Dallas Willard uh, in, in a book format on my shelf. I've, I've got, you know, uh, Timothy Keller or Francis Chan or the most inspiring speaker that I want to listen to accessible in my ear, ear pod, you know, earbuds, ear pods, everything. Uh, at any point throughout the day, I can plug those in and get some teaching. But what I can't get is a re friendships, relationships uh, with other people. So it seems like we're offering something to people which they're saturated with, like come to church and learn some more stuff, you know, and that is probably unless you're awesome, it's not as good as what they could get on the Internet in terms of preaching. And so, uh, you know, just go back to our conferences and listen to those lessons and you've got you know, if you, if you wanted to do that, but conference level material at the, t at the, but, but what, what, what is irreplaceable is, is close relationships. And you get that every time you start talking to people and they're like, man, this is what I needed. I just needed friends, people that cared, people that listened. And um, so I think that when we prioritize that and if, so say, you know, when you think about what's the one thing you can't miss in the week, um, it would probably be church, right? That would be the priority. The Sunday church service is the, the primary meeting that we have. Um, and then probably midweek and then a, a, a devotional and, and then maybe D group and then maybe a D time in that order. I would assume, uh, I don't know if that's your experience as well. That's my experience. And so somehow the large group meeting has become the priority. Uh, but when I think according to these principles, which I, 
I believe are most important, which is intimacy and relationships with God and with others. That's the thing that probably facilitates them the least or not as much, you know? So um, it seems like we've got the priorities switched around. What hap- What would happen if we put relationships as a centerpiece and we had a small church model and then we had large groups on occasion to, you know, to rejoice together, to have a party, you know, but on, on a daily basis uh, or on a weekly basis to be meeting more in small groups. And I think the thing to be aware of is the um, influence of our culture as far as, you know, do we have a system or are we more programmatic um, and pragmatic? And I think that influence, there is that influence. So what threatens us being a family is being a system, having objectives, having KPIs, that we're working towards and those things, those big services are necessary for those things. You know, how do you measure church growth success if not by church growth? And so if you um, are trying to grow a church, then you kind of need everybody to be meeting together to some degree, Um, or at least it would seem to facilitate that church growth the best. So I, I, but I think that quick can quickly become very programmatic uh, and a bit corporate. And even the environment which the ICOC developed in, there was, you know, you know, if you think about it, we have a generally some sort of review of who's studying the Bible in our staff meetings in in all of my experience. And it corresponds quite closely with the pipeline review in a sales organization. And of course we pray before and that type of thing, but it does seem to mirror the corporate style, uh, you know, accountability to growth that organizations use to achieve their objectives, which seems a bit contrasting to Jesus, where in an instance like John six, everybody leaves him because he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He challenges them to intimacy with him and they are not about it. They wanted him to be King. They wanted him to wield power. They're not interested in a deeper experience and relationship with him. And so they all leave. So Jesus would, you know, have, have blown his, um, uh, what do you call it? His prediction for the month by a lot. If, if he was in uh, our staff meetings when he had all of his followers to leave him. So I think it's important to look at what is it influencing us? Is it biblical? Does this just, does this look like something Jesus would do? Um, and I do think he, uh, had a, a very intimate kind of vibe and church as a family and community seems healthier to me than church as a system or an organization, uh, because then we can just start to perpetuate that organization rather than to really serve the people. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. I love that. Um, it's, it's just so refreshing to just kind of, yeah, again, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but to just allow ourselves to think like this, to dream and to brainstorm and be creative and, come up with different solutions to go back to square one and think of, yeah, if we remove all of kind of the man created practices, what are we left with? Is it like, do we have the essentials? Are we prioritizing the essentials? I love what you said about prioritizing just intimate, close relationships. Cause I think that's what Jesus did too. 
Um, but I guess before we kind of switch it to all the space makers, I was just wondering if you could kind of recommend any tips or help to people who are deconstructing what church really means, because it could be very scary. It could be something that could on it obviously cause a lot of <laughs> friction. Um, and so I think how, what are your, what's your advice in terms of how can we explore these ideas and concepts without causing disunity? Have, do you have any examples for how you talk to your leaders even and all of that stuff? Yeah, I'm really lucky because I'm in a place with the leader who is open to having these types of conversations. So I think that might be why it's shocking to some, but then it's just like, oh yeah, we have these conversations all the time. And, uh, you know, he, he's expressed that he wants to support the younger generation. He's not trying to, uh, you know, get people to conform and just do what he does. He wants to collaborate. So that's really helpful. So find yourself a leader like that. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, work with what you got, where you're at. And um, prioritize relationships for sure. Like I think relationships and the love therein are the most valuable thing in life, you know, things in life. So don't lose that easily, you know, for the sake of an idea or something you get inspired by. Don't burn bridges that you don't have to. Um, do everything you can to maintain them and to love those people if, you know, if they see things differently from you. Uh, but you are a servant of Christ first. So in Galatians 1.10, where Paul says that he's not, you know, if he's a servant of people, then he can't, he can't still be a servant of Christ. Um, so we do have to make sure that we are serving Christ and not people. Um, so if you don't feel called, and, and this is just a curiosity thing to you, Maybe that's not the best thing to do and, and questioning and, and, and trying, you know, maybe if I wouldn't say everybody necessarily should do this, but um, I do think God is moving. And if those who do feel called to do do this, then I think we'll uh, be following God's will collectively. Um, but I, yeah, so I think uh, having some wise counselors, if, if you don't have church leaders who are supportive of this thing, then finding people who, are obviously really trying their best to be um, disciples, but may, uh, but also in, and are older than you can offer you perspective and help, but then, um, you know, uh, would, would really help you think through these things. And then I think some of us just need to be pioneers. You know, I was told when I left the ministry, um, I really appreciated the, uh, the advice from Mike Fontenot, he said that um, he said that I did my ministry duties well. And so I appreciated that, that he didn't try and make me feel like a failure. Um, even though I, you know, I, if I was him, it could have been tough to see somebody say, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. You know, he said that I did all of my ministry duties well. And then he told me that pioneers have arrows in their back. You know, so he said, go for it, do what you feel called to do, but just know, be prepared. You know, pioneers have arrows in their back. And, uh, but when I look at the Bible, you know, Jonathan, he scaled a wall and fought people with just his armor bearer because Saul wasn't doing anything. And uh, David, um, likewise, went and fought a Goliath, uh, fought a giant named Goliath. Uh, when other people weren't doing anything and everybody thought that he was out of place to do what he did. And um, likewise, Jesus unasked and uninvited 
starts in his ministry outside of the temple system. And then uh, Paul, likewise, um, abnormally born um, and uh, not, you know, didn't walk with Jesus, wasn't called in the same way by Jesus, does his thing, creates a, you know, a, a, a whole movement and, and rethinks, deconstructs Judaism in order to get to the truths of the gospel contained in the Old Testament, which illuminated this eternal truth, which is that God's plan of all time was that the Gentiles would be included. So these are just a few examples of people who were pioneers and it wasn't always easy, but they, you know, and they didn't necessarily have approval from anybody before they did what they did, um, but they were following God. And so I think, and, and it's obviously not everybody. So I don't think everybody needs to do this, but I think there's some people who should do it. Uh, and, and so that would be, uh, my advice is if you feel called to that, then, um, connect network, get support. And, um, I appreciate you guys because it seems like that's what you guys are doing. When Christianity was born, it was the only religion on the planet that had no sacred objects, no sacred persons and no sacred spaces. Although surrounded by Jewish synagogues and pagan temples, the early Christians were the only religious people on earth who did not erect sacred buildings for their worship. The Christian faith was born in homes, out in courtyards, and along roadsides. Frank Viola, Pagan Christianity. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 1 Corinthians 3.16 We hope you enjoyed part one, and we hope that you stick around for part two, the interview. As always, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and thank you so much for listening.